As often happens, I'm sure that Mark and the others didn't know this when they chose the music, but that song that we have just sung, I think I will forever associate with uh, a moment earlier this year when I had my first chance to hear firsthand from one of our IFE's senior leaders from Ukraine uh, as she shared her experience of evacuation at the start of the war and being stuck in day-long queues to get across the border with her family, children, uh, running out of food, running out of water, depending on sometimes the miraculous provision coming from nearby fields as locals came to give to those in the convoy of cars. And as she explained and uh, talked about that sense of dependence and uncertainty, and as she talked about leaving behind her house and all her possessions, uh, which would actually later on be bombed, uh, as it was near Bukha, where most of the atrocities happened in those early days of the war, uh, she explained just some of her emotions and thoughts of suddenly losing all of that. And as part of her testimony, she asked that we sing that song. Uh, it's a little bit different, isn't it, singing it on a Sunday night in Bangor. All of my life you have been so, so good. All of my life you have been faithful at knowing that there are people who can still sing that song when they have been for days in a convoy fleeing a war zone. I'll say a little bit more of that uh, later, but uh, first of all, thank you for inviting me back again. I had a lovely chance to catch up uh, just a couple of hours ago with Alan, who spoke this morning, since there's a strong IFES connection and he served our Slovenian movement uh, for a number of years, uh, and it was just great uh, having that connection, uh, and it was great to, to see him uh, again. My wife Gwen and I uh, work for IFES Europe. Uh, we're part of IFES World, one of the 11 regions. IFES, International Fellowship of Evangelical Students, uh, is in over 170 countries. It actually started 75 years ago. Uh, with just 10 movements, uh, and their vision was to have a Christian witness in every city of the world in which there was a university. Well, we haven't managed that just yet, but we are still pursuing that vision. Uh, we're getting close to having a Christian witness in every country where there is a, a university with a, just a number of closed countries and a few smaller countries uh, still to go, but we have presence in many of them. This is, if you like, our parish according to the IFES Europe website, but it's actually not quite because they've left off some of the edges. Uh, our parish uh, is actually from Jerusalem in the Middle East to Asiat on the west coast of Greenland. Uh, when I was at college, there was uh, a book on missiology called From Jerusalem to Arian Jaya, taking up uh, Jesus' words that you will be my witnesses in uh, Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth. Uh, but as far as Europe's concerned, that would be from Jerusalem to Asiat. Uh, we pioneered a work in Greenland just uh, a few years ago from our Danish movement, and I had the privilege this week of speaking 
to uh, one of the young students uh, who, from Denmark who's helping with that work. And he was telling me that they have been invited, having been in the capital, Nuuk, in the southwest for a number of years, they have now been invited up to help with a movement in what they call the gymnasium, which is sort of somewhere between a high school and a university in the northern town of Asiat, by which you can only get uh, to by plane. And it was just fascinating hearing how he's going to be spending some days this week up there encouraging the Greenlandic students and reminding them that they are part of something much, much bigger, even though there is a geographical isolation. And uh, in Jerusalem, although in the Middle East, a little bit like the Eurovision Song Contest or the football, they associate with Europe because of uh, political situations. Uh, and I'll say a bit more about that. But now, having had 42 countries under my remit when I took on the job in February, I now have 43. Because like Israel having to move over to Europe, Ukraine has had to move over as part of initially of our Eurasian movement alongside Russia and the other former Soviet Union countries. They have asked to be part of us for, for understandable reasons. So it is a very widespread uh, parish. And uh, this is uh, some of the uh, leaders over which I have pastoral oversight. I could tell you a story about any, many of them, whether it's Kiersey in Estonia or whether it's Dorcas in Spain or Katharina in North Macedonia or Beata in Poland or Russia in the bottom right-hand corner there who is the General Secretary of our Israeli movement, FCSI. Uh, the Israeli movement is made up both of Messianic Jews and Palestinian Christians. If the general secretary or the director is Palestinian, then the chair of the board has to be a Messianic Jew, and vice versa. They strive uh, tirelessly to make sure that the movement is united and that, uh, that, they, that they work together as a sign of the gospel. Uh, I was delighted to hear that last year she says that most of the students in their movement have tended to come from the Palestinian Christian community. Uh, and when they have had a conference, maybe it's been three quarters, one quarter Palestinian. But at their latest conference, they've been working very hard and they have almost 50-50 Messianic Jews and Palestinian Christians. It's a wonderful work and I hope to visit them in November and actually uh, encourage them and see how we can continue to help them. There are also some pioneering areas. Uh, we have uh, uh, pioneering movements in Luxembourg, in Cyprus, uh, in Malta, in Greenland, in Kosovo, and then a Spanish pioneering movement down in Equatorial Guinea, which is the only Spanish-speaking part of Africa. And these are the people who, uh, who we work with. In Cyprus, again, where I'll be visiting next month, We've been working for over six years and I hope to affiliate to IFES next year. In Luxembourg, we've been working for over three years. In Greenland, uh, now probably about three years. Malta, we've had a movement in the past, but it's actually uh, vacant at the moment and we're praying and actually talking to folks about going out to re-establish the IFES work in Malta. Uh, and then in Kosovo, uh, we have not yet begun. It's a politically sensitive area 
Our Albanian and our Serbian leaders are the best of friends. They do a wonderful talk on reconciliation if you ever want to hear it outside of the Irish context, how it's happening elsewhere. You need to talk to Zef and Samuel from Albania and from Serbia. But they um, will acknowledge that it's not easy to know how we would start a movement in Kosovo because uh, who would lead that movement, who would pioneer it, would still be a politically sensitive question. But we're praying that that will happen, that that will happen soon. The Foyer ex uh, Evangelists Network is another thing which I've been involved in for a number of years. FOIR stands for the Fellowship of Evangelists for the Universities of Europe. Uh, so we just about get that in there. But it's also the German word for fire. Uh, and the idea is that we will train up a generation of young graduates who are committed to proclamation evangelism within the university. The feeling was that for many years, because of the secular nature of, um, of Europe, and if you like, the, the bad type of evangelism which had taken place uh, in, in many cases, that, that student movements had lost their evangelistic vision and had just been doing a little bit of small group work, a little bit of personal evangelism, a little bit of discipleship, uh, acting almost like as a little cocoon for Christian students. But we realized that the movement would only grow if we once again realized that the gospel has something to say into the university. So for about 14 years, we've been holding this conference. That's where I'm going from tomorrow morning. Uh, I'll be heading over to that for this year, uh, to Greece, where there will be about 180 uh, evangelists being trained. Uh, and there are three strands to that. There, is, there are those who are looking to be evangelists within the university context. There will be about 40 academics uh, people who hold tenure in universities, who are Christians, who will be coming to find out how they can use that to help the IFES movements. One way is that in many closed countries, the students cannot do overt evangelism, but they are willing to have guest lecturers in the humanities and in the sciences come and give a lecture and then hold post-lecture meetings, which of course are run by the Christian Union, so that people can ask questions about the faith of the scientist. Usually they will pick a subject where they will be able to demonstrate how the Christian worldview, whether it is to do with artificial intelligence or cosmology or literature, uh, how that impacts how they view their subject. And this has been happening in places like Belarus, the Czech Republic, and also many other Eastern European countries. We will also be training those in seeker Bible studies, small group, people whose gifts are more in the small group, to work out how can we uh, develop our uh, small group Bible studies so that they are evangelistic. Uh, and over the last number of years, we've probably had about 200 mission weeks throughout Europe arising from this conference. So you can pray, please, for that. Uh, I also do a fair bit of Bible teaching. During COVID, I put out a, a series called Sunday Night with the Judges in my, my Vimeo uh, channel. Uh, and I do a little bit of writing and preaching and also organize IFES conferences and webinars. Again, during COVID, we were able to put on some webinars. One was at the start of the, actually, uh, we continued it at the start of the war on how is Christian response in times of war. But we also did some on, you know, the new Europe and uh, the issues facing Europe. Uh, and on conspiracy theories, things like that. And we actually found many other people from other regions, from Africa and Asia, tuning in 
to these uh, webinars. So I uh, lead the region uh, and I'm happy to say that I now have a full complement in my team. Uh, I, again, with COVID and the change, I was sort of left to find my own team. But from uh, the Netherlands and uh, Bulgaria, uh, Austria, the UK, we now have a full complement of the team helping me uh, around, around Europe. Uh, multiple ministries, I've just listed some of them there. Interaction is our short-term cross-cultural volunteers. If you're a student, maybe involved in the Irish CUI movement, uh, you come to graduate, you can serve one of the Christian Union movements that I uh, work with in Europe. You can serve them for one or two years as an interaction worker. There is an international student ministry, I mentioned foyer, there is a Muslim ministry, uh, there is a, a staff training and leadership development, a scripture engagement, fundraising within your own country, engaging the university with Christian academics, postgraduate work, and governance training uh, for our board. Alan, who was with you this morning, was actually one of the board chairs who, who benefited from that. So again, trying to get a healthy, sustainable movement uh, in each of our European countries. And just the nature of the beast means that at any one time, there might be a third of our movements doing very well and very strongly, and I don't have to worry too much about them. There might be a third that just have one or two things that they need a bit of help with, and there'll be a third who need a lot of help. And that is the way it goes. But um, again, our aim is always to have those sustainable indigenous movements. We're not a top-down. I go and offer help. I offer a little bit of advice and we give resources, we encourage, we pray, uh, we, we help with the training, but every national movement is autonomous and can direct its own affairs. Here's just some photographs from the last summer, uh, things that I'd done. I visited the Hungarian staff office uh, and I heard a little bit of what they're doing. We commissioned some of our volunteers for the next two years at one of our conferences in Germany, and then there was a big discipleship leadership conference. The, the IFES word is a Spanish word, formacion, which is almost like discipleship plus, sometimes discipleship, and I know uh, Christoph would avoid this and, and, and question this, but I think there's certainly the impression that discipleship can very much be a to-do list. How do we be a disciple? Uh, IFES has always emphasized the word formacion, which is also about full character formation as well. Uh, and we have an annual Formacion conference, and that's a photograph of, of that, where, again, we thought we didn't know how many we'd have after COVID, and we were delighted to have about 60, representing over 20 countries uh, last August. Now, of course, I took over the role in February, and a couple of days, three days into the job, uh, Putin invaded Ukraine. Um, so that has definitely uh, uh, monopolized our thinking, uh, certainly for the early few months. Uh, we had to set up an emergency relief fund. Uh, there's actually two funds available for folks to give to for that. Um, we had to try to coordinate uh, the news coming out from, from uh, Ukraine. Uh, and it was... It was, it was extremely disorienting for us. Ukraine was our strongest ministry in Eurasia. It's where the Eurasian conferences would have been held. A lot of Ukrainians went into the other countries as volunteers. 
Um, it was, and, and actually still is, a very strong uh, student Christian movement there. Uh, it's now under the care of IFES Europe. Daily we get prayer updates from Ukraine, and the thing that comes through very often at one hand is fear, uh, disappointment, questions to God as to why this happened when things were going so well, when there had been a sense of peace and stability and, and so much of the student movement was, was flourishing. Uh, some of the things they had lost, they had a strong international student ministry. And of course, many of the international students in the east of the country around uh, some of, you know, Donetsk and some of the other cities that we're hearing about in our news, they were the ones most affected. They were left uh, to their own devices, uh, in many ways abandoned, with no, in, in a country that they didn't know, in the middle of a war that they had nothing to do with. So part of our work involved trying to get those international students out. And uh, one of the things that happened was that we got a lot to Poland, and the Polish movement that was really trying to be regenerated and rejuvenated, uh, one of the things that they were really inspired to do and really helped them was to to have a center where they could, the Ukrainian international students could come, many of them from Africa and Asia, and find a way to fill in the forms to see if they could complete their studies in Poland. And we have noticed a real change and development in the Polish movement, which was very weak uh, a year ago, uh, as even there's a Belarusian staff member has now come there and is, is developing the ministry there. Uh, they have lost a number of staff who have evacuated and gone to other countries. They've lost many students. They've lost their way of life. Um, and that's, I think, one of the things that has really struck me, that people, unlike other refugee crises, um, these folks are coming from houses that, I've been into, that I have been in. These folks are coming from towns not dissimilar to towns here in Ireland. And it's been a traumatic loss of a, a whole way of life for them. This map might help us to see what it was like before the war uh, and then during the war. And with one exception, you can see the great number of uh, students uh, that they had in their groups in the blue dots before the war and how that has reduced from uh, over 500 uh, students down to just under 80 and from seven cities down to three. So again, all over into the west where things are safer uh, they have really uh, struggled uh, to maintain the ministry in many places. But they have been doing uh, some tremendous work. Uh, this was a, a poster uh, put up by a group. The staff worker here is called Irina. Uh, and they just immediately got involved in refugee and humanitarian help. Uh, and uh, they publicized that and they became known as a reliable and trustworthy center for the distribution uh, of aid. Uh, Marina is an amazing person. Uh, I've worked with her on a number of occasions. I'll be seeing her next week. Um, she uh, gave a testimony of how on the night that the war broke out, uh, she led a member of her family to Christ who was, who was just so concerned and not sure, you know, what happens if we die? And Marina says, well, it's certain that we are going to die. The question is, are we ready? Uh, and... Uh, she has continued to minister in Ukraine um, to, to many of the, of the refugees. Uh, you can see her here doing some evangelistic Bible studies. 
the little book is one that was produced by the British movement, UCCF, called Uncover. And it's an excellent resource to sit down with seekers and go through a number of lessons from one of the Gospels. It's available in Luke, John, and Mark. Uh, and uh, uh, she's been having that translated into Ukrainian and has been sitting down uh, with the, 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 the... A lot of these refugees have a lot of time in their hands, and she's actually been spending time with them uh, uh, doing the evangelistic Bible studies. And also a lot of young people doing some youth work uh, the one thing that struck me, you may not see it, uh, but if you look, I think, in some of the faces of those young people on the, on the photograph on the right, I, I was just struck that you could, you could see the, um, just the confusion, the fear, you know, the displacement. Uh, and Marina and others are seeking to minister to them, give them a fellowship, give them somewhere where they can have fun together, try to make things as normal as possible for them. Uh, the, the student centre was in Kiev, but they've now managed uh, through the relief fund to get a room in Lviv where things are a lot safer. And this new student centre has been opened and has become a hub and a focus for many of the students uh, in, in Ukraine. Growing outreach opportunities here in Lviv, virtually everyone in that photograph is a seeker. They're not a Christian, they're not a member of the Ukrainian movement but a few of the staff organized a number of events for these folks who have come to live in, in Lviv, and there are growing outreach opportunities all over the place. Uh, if you remember this photograph, there's a place called Ivano uh, um, Frankivsk in the, in the sort of bottom left there, uh, where they never had much of a work before, but now because it's been a center of evacuees, there is a new work, and again, most of the people in these photographs are seekers, had nothing to do with Christian ministry or Christian churches or whatever before, but they've been brought together and some of the staff have moved there to try to minister to them. So a lot to give thanks for, not just those losses, but a lot to give thanks for in the new opportunities in Ukraine. <clears throat> it of course begs the question, doesn't it, about our brothers and sisters in Russia? It's the same name, SSH, same name, but uh, in Russia, for the IFES movement. Uh, they have now been reduced to just two staff in Moscow and eight in Siberia, uh, no longer uh, any in other key cities like St. Petersburg. Um, great economic hardship. Uh, sanctions are biting hard. Spiritual isolation, they feel very much isolated from the other countries because of what their country and their government is doing. Uh, there is a transition of leadership. The former director, the former general secretary of Russia is a, a guy I know very well. Again, he would have come to a number of our conferences. He was based in Siberia and he spoke out very forcibly against the war as soon as it happened. And as we began to observe things and look at what he was saying, uh, I and one of the other IFES leaders were in touch with him, and we had to advise him to leave. Uh, Russia had just passed a law that said that anyone speaking publicly against the war could be liable for 10 years imprisonment. And he was very uh, set, and he said, no, I'm prepared to be a Daniel, I'm prepared to be an Esther. And our advice was, that's very noble, that's, that's incredible, we, we respect and admire you so much, but please think, you know, you don't have the ear of Putin. 
the way Esther and Daniel had the ear of the king. You're not there. He's not going to hear you. All that will happen is that your wife will be left without a husband and uh, the soon-to-be-born baby will be left without a father. So uh, with much heart-searching, he did the next day leave, I think, just in time. Uh, and now, of course, there's difficulty because those that are left behind feel a little bit of a sense of abandonment uh, because there, is, there are differ differences of opinion about what's happening. And it might be because some of those Russian leaders say, we will keep our views private because to speak out like Alexei spoke out will mean great uh, difficulty and hardship and, uh, for our families and friends. Others want to speak out, especially some of the younger ones. Some will not speak out because they're only hearing the Russian news stations. They're only hearing that propaganda and therefore they are not sure who to believe. Uh, and therefore, when they're talking to s folks from the other countries, there is a real sense among some of our Ukrainian brothers and sisters that the Russian uh, IFES guys need to be saying more, but they can only say what they know. So we have received some uh, letters from our, our brothers and sisters in Russia and also among it is a real fear of mobilization with Putin's latest uh, problems uh, that wanting to recruit new, new soldiers and new army, and they really fear that. Uh, they're going to a fight in a war that they don't understand and most don't agree with. And yet, there has also been uh, some good news there. The students themselves, in the middle of all of this, in places like Nozhny Novgorod, St. Petersburg and Novosibirsk, have initiated new outreaches. They held a Bible and Life conference in Moscow and in Omsk that was really fruitful and led to renewed enthusiasm for evangelism in the universities. So do continue to pray for wisdom and leadership for our friends in Russia. There's a lot there. And as I was thinking about this this evening in terms of how to, to wrap this up, uh, I began to think about how does a Christian respond in times of war? Because if we're to look at some of the Old Testament passages, like the one that, uh, you know, uh, Christoph very courageously read in 2 Samuel, of course the Bible is full of war, and the Bible is full of uh, almost the, the feeling that, yes, this, is, this war is good, you know, the good people are winning. So how do we interpret that? What can we learn uh, about mission in a broken world? From the Old Testament first, lessons from the kingship of David. And the first thing, uh, I'll just put this up here because it helps to orient us in terms of where we are in salvation history. Uh, this this uh, diagram uh, you might find helpful. Uh, some of it hasn't come through, I think, as well as I as well as I uh, wanted there, but uh, some of the, 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 the blue is missing, I think. But what it's really the red and the yellow that I think will help us. When we're thinking of, of, of a situation of war, what you've got to understand is that the storyline of the Bible is on the one hand the storyline of a narrowing judgment, a narrowing focus of judgment, and at the same time, a broadening horizon of salvation. And I find this really helpful as I come to some of those passages in the Old Testament. So early on, 
Who is judged at the time of Noah? The whole world. Who has saved a small family? And then when you look at the, the Canaanites and the, uh, you know, the, uh, the conquest, who has judged the Canaanite nations? Who has saved one nation? Just broadening. Then you come to the time of Israel. But, you know, David is somewhere between the Canaanites and the exile. So uh, who, is, who has judged Israel? Who is being saved? The, the, the remnant among the nations. And then, of course, you come to the New Testament. Where does the judgment fall? On Christ, who has saved all who believe. And so the Bible is gradually showing the fact that there needs to be judgment, but that judgment is becoming narrower and narrower and narrower until it focuses on Christ. And there is salvation from that, which is getting broader and broader to include members of all the nations. And so what David is doing at this time in salvation history is bringing in God's kingdom and being an agent of his judgment against many of the nations around who were set up against, uh, against him. And in 2 Samuel 8 in particular, there's just three things I want us to hold on to. First of all, and this applies right the way through to mission today, there will always be those who wage war against the kingdom. Always be those who wage war against the kingdom. Uh, it might be unsympathetic bosses or family members or colleagues or school friends undermining the kingdom of God, going out of their way to make it difficult for us to establish God's kingdom in our environment and in our situation. There will always be little Putins around the place. And we see this in our mission throughout Europe. It might be university authorities being discriminating against Christian groups from renting places to have their meetings. It might be established churches in Eastern Europe, the Orthodox Church, not allowing any other Christian activity to take place. If we repay like with like, we lose the battle. Our weapons are now spiritual ones. But those are not the only people around. There will also be some who seek peace with the kingdom. In the passage in 2 Samuel 8, we had this interesting character too, King of Hamath, who made peace with David. It does well to remember Jesus' words. In the Luke passage, he who is not against us is for us. It doesn't mean that they're part of the kingdom, but it does mean that we're not to treat everybody as if they're an enemy. And many of our student groups around Europe are finding that they can make helpful alliances with some university authorities or some other groups and societies in the interests of freedom of speech and freedom of association. So that when one group uh, in one of our countries was banned by an overzealous secular university, it was the students in that college that stood up and said, no, these guys put on the best activities. Uh, the argument was, we can't let the Christians have a presence here because then all the religions will want one and we have a no-religion policy. Well, of course, they had a, a mono-religious, secular religious policy. But, uh, and of course, the Christians were saying, we're not, we don't mind if all the other movements come. We don't mind if all the other religions are representative. We, we just want to do our part. And it was the students who came and said, no, these guys do the best, do the best events. You know, let them, 
let them be here. And so there will always be those who can help to make peace with the kingdom and be our allies. But for us, of course, the challenge is that we need people who will help make the kingdom a reality. And at the end of that chapter in 2 Samuel 8, you had a rather uninteresting list of government appointments and government officials, David's cabinet, if you like. Uh, it was those people as much as David who kept the kingdom operating. Administration doesn't get the headlines, but it gets the job done. If David relied on a group of people to help make his kingdom, then David's son, our Lord Jesus, is asking us to be his team, to be the recorders and secretaries and priests, the workers who make his kingdom a reality in the places where he has put us in our society, on our front lines, wherever it might be. Making part of the kingdom of God alive in our world by our attitudes, values, speech, and action is as much relevant to you folks here in Hamilton Road as it is to me and my students around Europe. For Zadok and Sariah and Jehoshaphat, it would have been the pinnacle of their career, a senior government job in the most successful dynasty Israel ever experienced. But that's nothing to being Holy Spirit-filled workers of the risen Lord Jesus in 2022. We have more opportunities than they ever had to embody the principles and kingdom values of the one true God. And then finally, mission in a broken world in the New Testament. Lessons from the son of David. In Luke chapter 9, we have three fascinating little cameos that Christoph read for us. Jesus had just been predicting his death. He had bared his soul. He had opened his heart. And the next thing we read is that the disciples were arguing over who was the greatest. In every Christian church, in every society, there will be this petty competitiveness. It'll not be any surprise to tell you that student groups, uh, as these young student disciples are still being formed in their character, uh, as in Christian ministries, even between Christian student ministries, I have experienced some petty competitiveness. No, we're working here, you don't work here, and vice versa. That we need to be kingdom-minded people. And that brings us on to the second point, which is what I call denominational self-righteousness or territorialism, uh, where they, they say, Lord, we found somebody casting out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he wasn't one of us. And Jesus said, he who's not against us is for us. And of course, lots of things have been uh, written about the difference between that phrase and where Jesus also said, if you're not for me, you're against me. But the <coughs> difference is, of course, is in the pronoun, isn't it? If you're not for Jesus, you're against him. But we can have people, as I said, with the, in the life of David there, who can be allies, who can be, can be with us, but they're not necessarily part of us. We need to be open. We need to be like Paul in Philippians 1. I rejoice if Christ is preached. But at the larger communal level, and this comes back to the situation of the war, doesn't it? And how we relate to those who are our enemies. The final problem in this passage in Luke 9 
was that there was a bitter sectarianism. The Samaritans refused to receive this entourage, and the disciples get a little antsy, uh, and they want to use the potential celestial resources they think that are at their disposal. And they say, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? And your footnote says, like Elijah did. In fact, in some of the versions, uh, and it's often a footnote, and maybe in your personal Bible it's a footnote, I'm not sure why it's not in this version of the NIV, there is a whole extra verse there where it says, um, where Jesus says, it says that Jesus turned and rebuked them, and then you have this extra phrase, you do not know what spirit you are of, for the Son of Man came not to destroy men's lives, but to save them. It's very Jesus, isn't it? It's based on other things we know that he has said in the gospel. Well, whether or not that was originally part of Luke's gospel, there is a lot of evidence to decide that certainly it was in one of the traditions of Jesus' words of which Luke Luke was drawing. So even if you take what he says here, uh, uh, that Jesus turned around and said, uh, where Jesus turned around in verse 55 and rebuked them, what do you think he said? Well, knowing Jesus, knowing the context, weighing it up with other stories in the Gospels and Samaritan encounters, weighing it up with Jesus' statements about why he came, what his mission was, he probably said something like, you do not know what spirit you are of. The Son of Man came not to destroy lives, but to save them. Inter-ethnic suspicion and violence are prevalent the world over. And it's not always absent in the church. If you read some of the accounts of racial conflicts in North America, or of the Rwandan genocide, or of the Balkan conflict, or if we don't have to think too far back in our own country, where I remember people fresh out of prayer meetings where they've been burying their souls before Almighty God and they hear of some atrocity and they utter fierce invectives against the other community, wanting to call fire down from heaven and burn them to hell. I've talked about this to my Albanian and Serbian colleagues. I've talked about it to my Ukrainian friends. A big missions conference this new year in Urbana in America takes place every three years. I've been asked to speak on the subject of God and nation, dealing with political prejudice of lessons from the Irish perspective into the North American perspective about how you can sanctify a political position. And with my Ukraine colleagues, I've said, I don't expect you to do this today. I don't expect you to do this even next year. But you've got to understand that one of the items of your future discipleship will be how you will in the future relate to your Russian Christian brothers and sisters. You see, the problem in each of these three little stories is that in every case, the disciples took upon themselves what belonged to God alone. Greatness. Who's the greatest? Choosing who was in and out judgment from heaven. All of that is God's work. 
Because don't we, friends, we serve the one who had the right to be called the greatest, but made himself nothing, taking on human form, even to the death on the cross. We serve the one who had every right to exclude because of who he was, exclude all of us from his kingdom because of our sin, but chose to open wide the gates of heaven and let us in along with every tribe and tongue and race and creed. We serve the one who had every right to pronounce judgment and call down fire from heaven as he did through Elijah, but who now has chosen to forgive and to save life. And what James and John failed to grasp was that there was a big difference between Elijah, a man of God at that time in salvation history, where at infrequent times he could have been the temporary agent and channel of God's judgment, and being a disciple, the ongoing permanent channel of God's Spirit. God has appointed us to speak, preach the gospel of transforming grace and to leave the judgment up to him. And with this I close. This, these stories provide a lens for us to see how Christ not only rebuked his disciples and taught them the better way, but how he embodied it himself, becoming nothing that we might become great, being excluded that we can be brought in, taking the judgment that we can escape it. Little did James and John know, but their salvation lay not in calling down fire from heaven on the Samaritans, but seeing that fire of judgment fall on the one they loved. And it's wonderful, isn't it? That when in Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans finally accept the gospel and the Holy Spirit falls on them. Who is one of the witnesses that is sent up to witness it? John. He went and laid hands on the Samaritans. He got to see fire from heaven fall on the Samaritan heads, but not in the way he imagined. To what spirit do we belong? Called to be witnesses in a broken world. May that be relevant to all of us this evening. Pray for the work among students. Pray for our friends in Ukraine and Russia and be his instruments wherever you are. Amen.